And we're continuing today in our discipleship series. Thanks, Gilbert. Great, mate. Appreciate it. So those that were here last week would have heard me sharing a few stories about my childhood, my growing up years, and particularly about one of the the formative uh, situations or formative um, occurrences throughout my life that really shaped so much of of my journey from that point. That was when my father left our family and uh, and we didn't see him for two or three years and and then... uh, from that point onwards, we, we basically had a, a, a single mother family. Uh, it was my mum and my brother and I. Nowadays, that's pretty common. Back then, it wasn't. And, um, and so that was, that was a real transformational experience for me in many ways. Uh, if you weren't here last week and you want to hear more of that story, you can check out uh, on, on, the, uh, uh, on the, not the live stream, the recording on the website. Uh, and you can go and listen to it. And um, Because today, I want to follow on with some things... Uh, that I talked about last week, uh, but I wanted to take some of these issues to another level. So essentially what I shared last week in a nutshell was was just how growing up without a father uh, changed so much in my life and, and it, it, it really left a hole in my life that took a long time to fill. Um, and then I shared about one of the men who stepped into that gap in my life, a pastor named Kev Wilcock, and how he influenced my life and, and, and in moments where... Without him standing up for me, I probably would have gone off on a different track. And, and where we all have moments in life where somebody standing up for us, somebody discipling us, somebody coming alongside us makes such a profound difference. And, um, and I was sharing, I finished last week with, with a story about how, how uh, Kev Wilcock, this guy, I'd, I'd lost track, lost, lost touch with him over a number of years. And some years later, I was pastoring my own church and I brought him back for a conference. And, and he was speaking at this conference and sharing a story about how when he was a young pastor, he had all these elders in the church who were, who were uh, uh, coming up to him quite upset because at the front of the church, around the entrance, there was a, a bunch of young kids, teenagers that were out there smoking and, and you know, they, they weren't, uh, it wasn't the right look. How will people ever come to the church if they've got to go through that? You've got to sort these kids out and, and move them on and, you know, tell them to sort their lives out. And Kev was telling this story and, and he was talking about how he, he really felt strongly that, that he needed to stand up for those young people and say, well, they're the ones that we're here for. They're the ones that God called us to. And, and he was just telling about this, this uh, conflict he had with his elders. And while I'm sitting there, uh, the pastor of this church at that stage at this conference, I suddenly saw this picture and, and I saw what he was talking about and, and it all came back to my memory because what I realised in that moment was that I was actually in that story and I was one of those 15-year-olds at the time and I was one of the ones who, back then, at a stage of my life where I could have gone in all sorts of different directions, Kev was one who had discipled me and he stood up for me. And so anyway, at the end of that conference, I, I was actually, sort of, I, I got quite emotional at the time and even again last week when I was sharing the story. But I said to the guys in my church, I said, you know, that person, that 15-year-old, smart aleck, whatever they are, whatever the situation, you actually don't know what they'll become. And I said, I said, Kev, you probably won't remember this, but I was in that story and I was one of those kids. And I thanked him for standing up for me. And, and I talked about how this is what discipleship is. Discipleship is so much more about what you do in your life, the example that you give rather than the words that you speak. Anyone can teach someone to do something. Anyone can tell someone to do something. But it's a much different thing to actually live a life where your example 
creates a foundation for someone where the things that you do, what, what you represent to them and the intersection of your life and theirs leaves them better for it. You know, I often wonder when I die, what will people say about me? Have you ever thought that? Like, you think, oh, I wonder what people think, you know. Obviously, everyone says something nice at your funeral, but, but afterwards, when they're thinking about the impact I had in their life, what will people think? What will people say? They're just the weird things I think about sometimes. You know, and, and the truth is that I can preach a thousand sermons and, and nobody's going to remember maybe one or two points from those, even myself. I don't remember most of what I've preached over the years and I wrote the things. But, you know, what people do remember is how your life intersected with theirs, how you made them feel, the things that you did, the example that you lived. That stands, stays with people so much more. And I think of people in my life and the people who who I look at and, I, and they may, may not have ever even uh, physically or you know, verbally taught me anything, but by watching them, by observing, by just having our lives intersect even for a moment, they either left a profoundly positive or a profoundly negative experience for me. And so I was pondering a lot of this stuff over the last week and I thought, you know, when, when it comes to discipleship, we have such an opportunity to speak into the lives of so many people but one group of people that almost every one of us has the opportunity to speak into and disciple, that sometimes we don't think in the same terms as discipleship, is our children. You know, as parents, parenting is the most, the, the, the core discipleship opportunity that God's given us. There's a reason God created the family unit. And one of those reasons was that this is an opportunity for children to be, be taught, not just by spe- speech, but by lifestyle, by example, to be taught the love of God, to be taught the nature of God, to be taught so many things about the kingdom of God. And we have this opportunity as parents. And so today I wanted to continue on with this theme of discipleship, but from a perspective of parents. Now, for those that aren't parents, don't switch off. Because first of all, you've all been kids, so you had parents. And some of the stuff I talk about maybe is going to impact you from your own experience. Maybe some of these things you'll think, wow, I didn't have that. Or, yeah, my parents really showed me that. And, and so we can identify as the recipients of either good or bad parenting and good or bad discipleship through the family unit. Or some of you, maybe you don't have kids yet, but you will have kids. Some of you, maybe you've had your kids, they've grown up, you've, uh, you, you've missed your chance, and, and you're now living either positively or negatively with the consequences of the way you did that. Often, for many of us, a little bit of each. You know, we've done some things well, we've done some things that we would do differently. Maybe you'll have grandkids one day, you get another opportunity. And it's more fun too because you can hand them back, apparently. Um, But also, in the church context, you know, we we often talk about the church being a family and, and we all believe it up here. But really, there's an opportunity for each of us in the kingdom to be able to come alongside people who are maybe new to the kingdom. Um, One thing that's always disturbed me in the church, and I'm just talking generally now, not our church, but generally with the church. One thing that's always disturbed me is the approach that many people have to evangelism, for example. You know, we go out there, we find someone, we invite them to church, and then we, we, we leave them with the church to sort out. Oh, great, I've brought them to church. They put their hand up. Woo, one, you know, that's one tick for me. Now, if I put that in the context of, let's say you had a baby, let's say you've gone through, you've, you, you've 
um, gone through uh, the, the whole pregnancy, gone through the labour, and as soon as that baby's born, you leave it on the church doorstep and go, woohoo, I'm done. Now, you'd be an abusive parent. The cops would come and they'd knock on your door and they'd say, what the heck are you doing? But sometimes that's our approach to evangelism. Oh, let's just bring them to the door of the church, get their hand up, and that's done. But, you know, just like spiritually, when we bring people into the kingdom, it's like having a baby physically. And if you have a baby as a couple, uh, you've then got an, uh, an opportunity and an obligation for at least 18 years, but I can tell you 27 and a bit years into that journey that it doesn't stop at 18, um, but you have an opportunity and an obligation to raise and disciple that person, that young boy, that young girl, that spiritually young boy, young girl. It's not enough to bring them to the church. Don't bring them here and expect that the church will sort them out, just like you don't send your kids to school expecting the school to sort them out. You know, as parents, we have an obligation and a responsibility and an incredible privilege before God. And sometimes we don't see that in the same vein as discipleship. We look at parenting, that's one topic, and let's talk about parenting. We look at discipleship, we look at evangelism, and we, we sort of separate or, or silo out those different things, and we see them as different issues. But they're actually all related. Because what discipleship is, is taking somebody by the hand who's a couple of steps behind you and leading them on. And for you, it's reaching out to someone who's a couple of steps ahead of you and allowing them to bring you on. That's discipleship. It's as simple as that. Who are you speaking into? Whose life are you speaking into today? And who is speaking into your life? That's discipleship. You know, we make all these spiritual things out of it and we, we, we sell books and have seminars and all sorts of things on, on, on the issue of discipleship. But it's actually very simple. Are you speaking into someone's life? Is someone speaking into your life? But not just with words. As I said last week, is your life speaking into someone's life? Is your example speaking into someone's life? Are you seeing from the example of those that are going ahead, both in the positive and the negative? You know, you can be discipled by things that other people do wrong too, as well as by things that other people do well. Um, and it's just about being open for the Spirit to, to lead us, to guide us and to teach us. This is all discipleship. In my journey, because I didn't have a father in the home, I grew up with a whole lot of struggles with identity, with who I was, with whether I was worthwhile, with whether I was any good, with whether anybody actually loved me. Because, you know, when, when you grow up and you have a parent that leaves, the reality is it's, it's rarely ever the kid who's the problem. You know, it's something in the marriage or whatever the circumstances are that have led a couple to separate or divorce. But as a child in that situation, you take that on yourself. Oh, it must be something about me. Or even subconsciously, you just start to, uh, start to take on board that maybe I'm not lovable, maybe people won't stay around, maybe I'm not worthy, all those things. And you go through all of this sort of stuff in your mind, sometimes without even thinking consciously about it. And so when I grew up, I just had this, I guess, a, a, a realisation maybe or, or a feeling that maybe I was less than all the other kids in my class because they all had dads around, you know, when we go to footy and all these different things and sports carnivals and, you know, you go and you do really well in an event and, and your dad's not there. And because of that, because mum then had to work so hard and do two or three jobs most of the time and work, you know, many, many hours uh, throughout the week, that meant she physically couldn't be there as well. And so, so I grew up with this massive hole. But throughout those years, one thing that I really at a very deep level, wanted was, and it became my goal in life. Even at 16, 17, 18, I wanted to be a husband and a father. 
you know, a lot of 17, 18 year old boys that want to go out and live and party and do whatever. I just had no interest in that. I wanted to be a husband and a father. And I wanted to give my kids what I didn't have. I wanted to have a, have a good, solid relationship, a strong relationship. I remember on my wedding day, actually, so I got married at 20. Tiff was 21. Um, but uh, so we were pretty young. And I remember on the wedding day, uh, my dad made some silly comment because throughout my teenage years, dad came back into our life, you know, the old every second weekend and one week in holidays, that, that type of arrangement. So we were still with mum full time, but we had a relationship with dad. So on the wedding day, dad was there and he just made a comment. It was something about, you know, the plans for the day or something's going wrong. He said, that's okay, it's just your first one. And, and I stopped him. I said, no, 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 this is my only one. It's the only time I'm ever, ever going to get married. And he said, you don't know that. You can't possibly know that. I said, yes, I can. I said, because we've decided that. And, and so even there, like my dad, you know, he, he had his own journey. He was in his second marriage by then. And, and uh, anyway, so, so but I just remember that conversation where he, his whole mindset was, well, how can you possibly say you're going to be married for life? Um, and, and it was just a very different mindset. Um, and so anyway, I got married at 20. Uh, we had Caleb at, I was 22, so pretty young. Um, the good part about that is, as, as you most, most of you know, we've got three kids now. Julie is our youngest. So we were totally done. Julie was out the door before I turned 50, which was great. And so it means that I'm now 50 and looking at 20 or 30 good years of, of uh, whatever left and the kids are gone. And um, so anyway, we love you kids, you know, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we, had, we started having children young. So at 22, I became a father. And in that moment... I suddenly got it. Until that moment, I had no idea really how God loved me. I had no concept of God's love. I shared last week that I was always good with Jesus. He was cool, you know, I, I, but I saw God as like the distant, almost angry God. You know, he, he was like, it was God's anger that Jesus' death saved me from. And it's almost like Jesus is standing between me and God just protecting me. This was the, the, the picture that I got growing up in the Catholic Church and just was the picture I always had of God. And, and throughout my teenage years, I discovered up here about God's love and the Father heart of God and all those sorts of things. But because of the hole that was in my heart, I didn't really get it. And, and even in marriage, marriage does a lot to, to, to uh, fill you with, with um, uh, acceptance and peace and all those sorts of things. But I was still quite insecure. You know, in the first few years of marriage, I was, I was convinced Tiff was going to find someone better at some point and, and uh, you know, was sort of almost waiting for that to happen. And, and it sort of shocked me over those first few years to realise that, that, you know, she was actually with me for life too. And so, so I was working through all that stuff of insecurity. But when we saw that little Ranger bundle of joy, you know, uh, who, who, Caleb, he came out uh, shaking his fist and screaming after 36 hours of really traumatic labour. It was pretty tough for Tiff too, by the way. But, um, but you know, it was... It was <laughs> It was, a, it was a pretty tough time um, in, in that whole labour experience. Um, anyone who knows us well has probably heard the story. But in that moment that Caleb was born, I suddenly got it. I understood how God could love me because I'd never really felt that before. I'd never really understood it at a heart level. And, and as I started navigating through that very difficult job of parenthood and as the kids started growing, I, I had a revelation of unconditional love I had a glimpse at how God loves me. I also had many glimpses of how 
I relate to God. You know, as you watch your kids navigate through life and as you watch your kids go through all the different experiences and circumstances, if you're looking, you can see so much of your own journey with God. You know, so many of those same stumbles and falls and fears and insecurities and everything else that that you're helping your kids through. And as your kids come to you with that insecurity that to you as an adult might seem a bit silly, but you just grab them and you cuddle them and you you talk them through it and and you love them through it. I started to see for the first time how that's how God re- relates to me. That he wasn't looking to smack me over the head every time I got it wrong. But even when I fell over, even when I started doing things or you know, maybe I stumbled, he, he was there to pick me up. He was there to comfort me. He was there to, to help me and to reassure me that he loves me. And, and I sensed all that as a father. So for me as a father, most of my understanding of God was transformed and, and I suddenly realised the reason that I'd had such a, a big hole in my heart for so many years. And I think for many of us, through our own journeys, because most of the guys I know that are the next generation ahead of me, their experience with their fathers was often a lot more violent and distant and, and all those sorts of things because back then in that generation, you know, fathers weren't... You didn't show any emotion. You were out there to earn the, earn the income and slap them across the head when they got it wrong. You know, there was this whole generation of fatherhood that, that actually uh, caused a lot of damage to children in my generation and just above. And, and none of that to, you know, to criticise that generation. I mean, most of us, we just do the best we can with what we've got. I know there was a guy in my church back in Sydney. Um, his name was Dave. And quite often I'd have to get involved in, in family counselling and all sorts of things with him and his wife were on again, off again. Like he was, he was just one of those guys that never really considered his wife, never considered his kids. He was a bit of an oaf, you know, and, and he would say and do the silliest things and I'd say, Dave, mate, just get a grip. And, and then I heard his story and I heard the, the violent, angry father that he grew up with and his internal picture was that he was so much better than his father. He actually thought he was a really good husband and father because of the example that his life was modelled on and, and how many steps he had made from that. And, you know, sometimes we, we all have this inner perspective based on what we've been through. And, and so what I discovered as, a, as an adult and as a father, I started to understand more about my own parents' perspectives and their journeys and their battles. You know, growing up, all I knew was my dad left the family. And we grew up without a father there. But then when I grew up and I realised that his father died when he was seven and he was one of eight kids and he was the only boy and he, from seven years of age, had to basically be the man of the house. And, and all of these things, and I heard more about his journey, I understood why it was so difficult for him to be a father because he never had the example. He didn't know how to. And so instead he ran. When things got tough, he ran. And so the empathy that I was able to gain, even for my dad... But I never really was able to do that until I became a dad. And, and you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like you just sometimes you have an experience and you just get it. Before that you have no concept and suddenly it all just makes sense. And so as parents, we enter into this situation usually unprepared. Usually, you know, they don't really have any classes at school or even uni on parenting. And if they did, it would probably not be that helpful anyway because it would be all theory. And you come into this situation with this little bundle of joy and you take it home from the hospital and you think, what the heck have I done? You know, and, and you, you learn as you go, don't you? 
You learn for better or for worse as you go. Every experience is a new experience. Every situation that arises is a new situation. And then just when your first one gets to two or three or four and you have a second one and think, oh, yep, I've got this, the second one's totally different. And, and you, you just you start doing what you did with the first one and it doesn't work. And it's, oh, man, we've got to start all this over again. Does anyone relate? So it is with discipleship. <laughs> you know, we have this opportunity as parents. Now, one thing that you should rest assured about is your kids don't expect you to be perfect. If they've lived with you for more than five minutes, they know you're not anyway, but they don't expect perfection. What kids generally expect, and particularly teenagers, they get this radar when they're teenagers, um, the, 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 the bull something, the bull something radar, and, um, and, and they, they, see, they, they see, you know, bull for what it is, and up until then maybe you've been able to convince them to do what you say and not what you do, but suddenly they become teenagers and, and it's, all, it's all over. Now, sometimes the irony about that is that as teenagers, they've got that radar for you, but it doesn't apply for them and their friends, eh? You know, it's only, it's only you and, and anyway, but we, we have these things that, and so we've got these pairs of eyes that are watching how we live life. But what they're looking for is consistency. What they're looking for is, is just that we actually live what we say. Isn't that what we're all looking for in somebody? You know, do, can you think of anybody, this is just rhetorical, can you think of anybody who says one thing, but when you see their life, you think, oh, come on, mate, seriously? I, I'm sure we've all got those people that we've come across in life. Maybe some of them are close to us. And then you get these other people where you just observe them. You observe them in difficult times. You observe them in good times. You observe them in all sorts of situations. And you think, wow, they're actually, they're authentic. This, this is legit. This is fair income. You know, this is the real thing. Yes, they stuff up, they make mistakes, they do all that sort of stuff, but by and large, their life is consistent with what they say. Now, when you, as a parent, can have that sort of relationship with your children, that's a very, very powerful foundation for their life. You know, when it comes to parenting and discipleship and child raising, we, we love certain scriptures, don't we? We love, like, Proverbs 22, verse 6, for example. Start children off the way they should go, and even when they're old, they'll not turn from it. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Or Ephesians 6, this is probably our favourite, isn't it? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Usually we stop there, don't we? Just verse 1. But anyway, it, it does continue. Um, Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers... Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. You know, all through Scripture, parenting is discipleship. We're, to we're told to teach our children. We're told to instruct our children. And so often, we, we internalise that as we need to tell them the way to go. We need to tell them what to do. We need to give them the, the, the verbal instruction. But that's actually not really what it's talking about. I've, I've been in ministry now for many years in pastoral ministry for about 25 and in that time I would have to say one of the two biggest issues that I've come across time after time after time is an issue where parents can't understand why their kids have taken off, why their kids have want nothing to do with them, why there's just such a breakdown in relationship and when you delve into the circumstances 
you realise that at least from the child's perspective, rightly or wrongly, their perception was that the parents didn't live what they preached. They, they heard a message of judgment. They heard a message of do the right thing or else. They heard the message of hell. They heard all of these sorts of messages and, and this was what was internalised. And, and they didn't feel loved. They didn't feel like they were unconditionally loved. Now, I can say as a parent, often that's not what the parent intends. You know, often you're trying to give your child a message, but they're hearing something totally different. One example from our life, um, and I can say it because she's talked about it publicly, but um, between Caleb and Jackie, uh, Tiff and I actually lost a, a, a baby. Tiff had a miscarriage. And, um, and so for us, that was, that was quite a, a traumatic circumstance in life. And so we, we named our son Enoch because he, he went to be with God. And so Enoch was due to be born on my birthday, 3rd of April, 1998. And as it turns out, you know, obviously we, we lost him about six months earlier. Um, as it turns out, Jackie was conceived around that same time. And so we would say to Jackie as she was growing up, we would say, oh, it's, it's just so amazing. Like, you know, the, yes, we had all this trauma losing Enoch, but... We got you out of it, you know, if, because he, he was, you know, if he had been born, you couldn't have been conceived at the same time. You know, that whole conversation, we were just talking about how, how joyful we were that we actually had her. What she internalised from that was that it was her fault that Enoch died. If it wasn't for you, he wouldn't have died. Now, that internalised message didn't come out until she was about 15. And so, and then we, we were able to work through it finally. But for 15 years, the message she internalised, when we were trying to actually tell her how much she was loved and, and, and cherished and, and how she was like the, the, the silver lining in that cloud, that whole situation, she heard that wrong. And sometimes a message can actually be misheard. You know, so it's not always that someone's perception is truth, but their perception is their reality. And, and I've seen so often where children... Go, you know, run from the kingdom, run from church, run from any involvement. And, and when you delve into the circumstances, it came back to what they saw, the example that they saw within their family home. You know, when we think about disciples, we think about Jesus and the disciples. He lived with them for three years, essentially, 24-7. They, they walked around... All, all over the nation together, they, they taught together, they would have slept in the same area, they would have eaten together, they just did life together for three years. One thing that astounds me is at the end of three years, with Jesus 24-7, through all of the traumas, all the difficulties, all the circumstances of life, when those disciples wrote the Gospels, they could each affirm that he did not sin. That he had not sinned. He'd never, they had never seen anything from Jesus that was inconsistent with who he was. And we know through scripture that he didn't sin. And, and I've often thought, so I have these random thoughts. I don't know about you guys, but I've often thought, if someone actually was with me 24-7 for three years, what would they actually think? What would be their takeaway from the way I lived in that three-year period? Because that's discipleship. And the ones that have the greatest opportunity to observe you that closely are your children and your spouse for that matter. So within the family unit, the family unit is God's ordained unit for raising children, for children to learn about him, to understand his nature, to understand his character. You are the first representation of God that your child will ever have, male or female. 
Um, as a father, as a mother, there are different aspects of God that we fulfil in a child's life. And we've got to be intentional. Sometimes we can just go through life without any real intentionality. We're just trying to do the best we can. We just go day by day, week by week, earn the money, put the food on the table, try and you know, do a few good things. But if we're not intentional, we can turn around and your kid's 27 and a half. And you think, where's the time gone? And I think intentionality in everything in life is so important, but particularly in parenting. If I intentionally decide that I'm going to disciple my children, then it causes me to think about every action, causes me to think about every uh, perspective that I show. It causes me to think about how I live my life because what are those three little pairs of eyes seeing in what I do? They can hear what I say, that's fine. I can tell them what God says. I can tell them, Ephesians 6, 1, obey your parents. Sure, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But is my life making me the sort of person that they want to obey? Is my life making me the sort of person that they're drawn to? Because when I look at Jesus, he never had to demand compliance from anybody. You go back through the Gospels and have a look, he never demanded compliance. He called people to a higher way. But the first thing that happened in every case was they were drawn to him. The one example, the one exception, I should say, was the religious people. The ones who wanted to tell everybody else how to live, who wanted to tell everybody else how they should do things and wear God's mouthpiece and you're not on the inside unless you do it our way. They're the exception. But normal people, sinners, Jews, Gentiles, male, female, kids, whoever, they were drawn to him. And he loved them and he accepted them and he was gentle with them and then he called them to a higher way. And, you know, what I've discovered through parenting, and, and I sit back here now, as I said, my kids are grown up. One thing I love, by the way, is we've actually got really close relationships with all three of our kids as adults. And, and to me, I see that as the greatest achievement in my life. Not what I do in work or what I do in ministry or any of these other sorts of things. I actually, I love the fact that my kids want to hang with me. I love when, you know, Jackie, who lives in New Zealand now, texts me and says, oh, when are you coming over to see me? I'll miss you. You know, that, that's the sort of thing I love. Um, but what I've discovered about parenting is that there are certain key areas that we can actually be uh, an example to our kids. There are certain key areas, if we're intentional, that we can show them the nature of God and that we can draw them to him rather than driving them away from him. And I just want to quickly go through a few of those keys. And again, if you're not a parent... It's okay, because this will apply for you in different areas of life. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you just have people where you have influence in their lives. Maybe in church you can be like a parent figure to somebody who's, who's broken, who's got brokenness from broken relationships or whatever. But we can all follow these keys. So the first one is love. At John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You know, day by day in your families, in your homes... You show your children, you show your spouse what you love. And you show them what you love by a few things, by considering the people, the activities and the things that you're actually attracted to and attached to. The sacrifices that you make to see those people, to obtain those things or to have those experiences. Because the truth is we'll all sacrifice for something that is important to us. Um, sometimes I, I, I often observe, you know, people having conversations about, oh, we can't do that, it's so expensive, for example. 
and, and then see that same person when it comes to a different issue go and spend 10 times that amount on something that's really important to them because it's actually all about what's important to us or with our time. Oh, I don't have time to do that. What do you mean another meeting at church? What do you mean going having coffee or something? Oh, man, I'm so busy. But then when the footy's on or when something that you're into is on, it, it, it's a pleasure to sit there for two hours unless your team got done like mine did yesterday, 74 nil, of course. But, um, but most of the time it's a pleasure to do the things that are important to us. And what we show our kids, we can tell them what we love. We can say to our partner, I love you, but does your life show that you love them? Does your life show that you're pouring it out for them? Because that's how they, that's how they identify that you do love them. We, words are cheap. So when I think about my kids, I'll, I'll personalise this rather than make it rhetorical to you guys. When I think about my kids... I then think, well, what would my kids say about how I love their mum? They've, they've observed me now for up to 27 years. And uh, thankfully they don't get the mic today. But, you know, that's, that's one of the questions. What would they say about how I loved Tiff? And love, because it's not just past tense, by the way. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> what would they say about how I love them? From the example in my life. What would the priorities that I've shown for the last 27 years teach my kids about what I love? Or another one, respect. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One thing about parents is we often demand respect. You've got to respect me, I'm your father. Respect is actually never um, demanded. Like you, you, you never receive it if you demand it. It's always earned. Nobody will, now they might choose to respect you because of your position. More likely, you just have the power or the control to enforce compliance for a time. But the, the day will come where you won't have that control anymore, and you can't enforce compliance. And then you'll see whether the respect is there. But how about giving respect? How do I, as a father, give respect to my wife, to my children? You know, us guys are pretty bad at this sometimes. We, we love all those verses about, we're the head of the house and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But does my life make me somebody that is a pleasure to respect? Does my life, the way I live, make me somebody that my family would want to come around and, and follow? Or do I just demand it but not give it? Your respect recognises the best in people and it teaches us to treat others as though they're important. There's nothing more damaging to a child and, and even you know, an older child and even as adults for that matter than being treated as though you're unimportant. And being, you know, nothing hurts more than being treated as though you're useless or you your, your opinion doesn't matter. You know, the, there was a, a saying when I grew up, might still be a saying today, I don't know, but when I grew up it was children should be seen and not heard. Ever heard that? I hate it. hate that saying. Because what it's saying is children are, their opinion, their view, their input is worthless. It's useless. We don't want it. Yeah, we can see them, nice, pat you on the head, but I don't want to hear what you have to say. It, it's, a, it's a horrible statement. And, and many of us, particularly in older generations, grew up with that. Um, but, you know, respect. Do I teach my children respect by respecting them? 
Do I teach my children respect by respecting their mother? Do I teach them respect by respecting all those around me? Or do I get in the car after church and say, oh, you know what that person did? And start ranting and raving and giving nobody else respect. Because my actions are teaching them a lot more than my words. Do I use cruel and cutting words? You know, if you are the example to your child of who God is, a cutting word can totally devastate their relationship with God for 50 or 60 years. And I've dealt with people in their 60s and 70s and 80s who are still um, destroyed by the cutting words that they heard as children because those cutting words can sometimes become internal dialogue. And you say, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. They'll start to believe it and they'll start to become what you speak into their life. What we speak into our children's lives is so critically important. We have put-downs, winning battles... You know, I, when it comes to, to conflict, um, you, you can come back with a, with a cutting comment. You can win that argument. You go, I'll show you. But what damage does that do? What, what does that show them about respect? Or what about boundaries? What boundaries do you set intentionally within your family? Or do you passively allow society to set the moral boundaries of their lives? Your boundaries is about letting good things in and keeping bad things out. And sometimes as parents, that's probably the one we focus on. Oh, we can't do that. You can't. Let, let's try and protect our kids from the world. Well, that doesn't work either. But do we intentionally set the boundaries, not just for our kids but for ourselves? Are we the sort of parent that says, don't swear, you so-and-so? You know, and <laughs> mum and dad can swear but you can't. That's not setting boundaries. There's a really good book actually by Dr Henry Cloud called Boundaries. There's a few of them. Uh, if you haven't read it, can I really strongly encourage you to grab a copy of it because from a practical point of view, that covers that whole topic of boundaries incredibly well from a family perspective but also from a life perspective. What about gratitude? How often do you model gratitude in your family? Gratitude towards God, gratitude towards your children, towards your spouse, just gratitude in general. Or are you somebody that's always focused on the negative and whinging and complaining and, you know, all those things? You see, we model by our lives. We disciple our children by our lives. Grace and forgiveness. This is a huge one. When we're focused on moral boundaries and you must do the right thing, where, where does grace and forgiveness come into that? When our children stuff up, when our spouse maybe stuffs up, do we model grace and forgiveness or do we model the sort of punitive response uh, whether we uh, want to punish them or whether we just shut them out and, and you know, yeah, the silent treatment goes for days or weeks on end. I've known families where one has shut the other one out for years, for seven or eight years because of an offence, because of something that was done to one person or something that was said to one person and five, ten years later they've never spoken again. That's just tragic. You know, what are we modelling in the way we live our lives? Because our kids are watching. Jesus talks about that too in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. One of the scarier verses in the New Testament. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So are we treating our children and modelling grace and forgiveness with our kids? Or are we modelling a punitive God that they will then grow up believing that's what God's like? Encouragement. This is a big issue for me because encouragement is the one ministry, in inverted commas, 
that every one of us can engage in every day of our lives. It's free. It doesn't take any talent. It doesn't take any ability. It doesn't even take a platform. You can encourage people every day of your life. And I can tell you now, encouragement is one of the most powerful ways you can ever impact someone's life. If you're the one that says, oh, you can do this. I believe in you. You did so well. You know, even just call out in them. Like if you see maybe someone's, I don't know, learning an instrument, one of your kids learning an instrument, and rather than thinking, oh, that sounds like, you know, something awful, you encourage them. You, you build them up. You, like when, when our kids are learning to walk, we all get this. Imagine like when, when your kid learns to walk, probably hundreds of times they fall over. Would that be right? Someone like Angie or Sam, you guys know, like kids fall over probably hundreds of times before they actually master it, don't they? Do you ever once say, you're an idiot? Can't you get it right? You had fair income. We don't. We just, we grab them and say, come on, you're almost there. That, that's a real picture of encouragement, isn't it? We all get that when our kids walk. But what about when they learn something else? What about when they get older? Do we encourage? Do we encourage our family? Do we encourage the people around us? Do our kids see that we model a life of encouragement? 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. You know, encouragement is such a critical skill that if you learn it, you will have a, a profound impact on the lives of everybody around you. If you're known as an encourager, People will love you. They'll be drawn to you. They'll want to be with you because they'll remember how you make them feel. I can't overemphasize that enough. So, yeah, find, find something to encourage them about every day, multiple times a day if you can. Don't just make it platitudes. Don't just, you know, they get, they get something wrong. Say, oh, you're so good at that. Like, make it real. But there's so many opportunities we have to encourage. Adaptability, you know. Do we teach our kids, do we model adaptability or do we get strung out and stressed and anxious every time something goes wrong? You know, we can model adaptability to our kids. We can model all of these skills. We can, we can teach them that no matter what happens, God is in control. You know, do we, do we model trust? Do we trust God? Matthew 6, we won't read it, but 25 to 33, Jesus talks about, you know, don't worry about these things. Don't worry about your, what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat because God's got it all under control. Just seek God and he'll add all of this stuff to you. Do we model that to our kids or do we model worry to our kids? Do we model that every time... And I know parents who, for example, maybe they, they, they struggle financially, you know, and, and where... Every like they're, they're passing that on to their kids. Oh, no, we've got no money. We've got... And, and they, they pass all that worry and that stress on to their kids. And, and it becomes almost a, a cycle. You know, we, we, can, we continually uh, discuss certain things or talk about certain things and we, and we put burdens on our kids that they shouldn't have to bear. One thing that I discovered as an adult about my mum growing up was there were so many things that she could have told us, that she could have outlined and she didn't until we were adults about how dad had affairs about how dad did all sorts of things about how dad was out getting drunk and all that sort of stuff mum could have made him the enemy <clears throat> and and scored points against him and turned us towards her and away from him but she never did never once until I was an adult and started asking questions did I find out most of the stuff about what happened you know she protected us from some of the things that we weren't yet ready to bear 
And it's one of the things I really respect about her. If you're in a situation where your relationship's broken down or, you know, maybe you're co-parenting with... Um, where you, you, you're not with the child's other parent, for example, I can't say strongly enough um, how important it is to never weaponise the kids. No matter what you do, never weaponise your kids. Never make it about winning or losing with the other partner because you will both lose. I can tell you that as a child of a broken marriage, broken family. Um, the thing that I respect so much about my mum was that the way she navigated those years in that respect. And, and the th one of the things that I, caused me to lose respect for my father was how he navigated those years. But it's, it's tempting to try and get a one-up in a situation like that in the moment. But I can tell you, those little faces are watching. And there will come a day that they will know the truth. There will come a day that they will see it for what it is. That day came for me. That day came when I became a husband and a father. And I understood a whole lot of stuff that I never understood as that young man growing up with just a hole in my heart. And the other part about this too is that we can also learn from our children. We so often think in a discipleship sense that we're there to teach them. We're there to, we are the teacher, they are the student type scenario. But the things that I've learned from my kids are incredible. You know, Jesus went as far as saying in, we won't read these just for time, but Matthew 18, 1 to 3, if you're writing notes, and Mark 10, 13 to 16. It was two different encounters where children were brought to Jesus and, and he actually went as far as saying, unless you become like one of these little children, you won't see my kingdom. We can learn so much from children. I learned just as much from watching, particularly my, my young kids, you know, as toddlers and babies and as they, they grew and navigated life, I learned as much from them as I taught them. And, and I learned so much about God's love by watching them. And, you know, we've got to have an, an attitude of teachability. Can we be teachable? You know, God can teach you through anyone and anything. But if you're not prepared to learn from someone, because if you think, oh, no, they're just down here, I can't learn anything from them you'll sometimes miss out on some of the most profound things that God wants to show you. Because there's many aspects of the kingdom of God that can only be attained if we can become like a little child. So what I learned from my kids was confidence. You know, they knew that I loved them and, I, and I'd watch them come with confidence and sometimes too much confidence, you know, not even asking and just assuming, yes, well, I'm entitled to this because of who I am. Their identity that they grew up with that I didn't have because I didn't have that relationship with a father. And, and I watched them do life so differently and I watched them go through all of the difficulties of primary school and teenage years and into adult life and their own marriages and, and watching how they navigated it differently to me because of the different reality that they had. I watched them as they realised they belonged. They had a sense of belonging that I didn't have. They had a sense of identity and a sense of trust that I didn't have growing up. They had a sense of grace and forgiveness because they were in a home where grace and forgiveness was modelled far more than the home that I grew up in. And I saw so much of my own Christian journey through them. Because, you know, the ultimate goal of discipleship is to draw people to God so the question I ask myself as a parent if I am the representation of God to my children what am I drawing them to or what am I driving them away from to reveal God to them to draw them into relationship because this is Jesus approach we find in Matthew 11 verse 25 and 30 
At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to, be to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the Jesus model of discipleship. Come to me, you who are weary. I want to give you rest. And so as a parent, I ask myself, is that the God that I'm drawing my kids to? You know, I want to finish with a story today. It's a story about a man named Tony. I met Tony about 15 or 16 years ago, and maybe 17 years ago. And anyway, Tony, he was in his mid-30s. He was a real intelligent guy. He was a real up-and-comer. He had achieved so much in his, in his career. He, he was, if you looked at him, you'd think, man, this guy's got it all. He had a well, well-paid job. His family were friends of the New South Wales governor. You know, they, they were one of those to, well-to-do families. They lived over in the eastern suburbs. They had everything that you could possibly imagine. Tony came along to our little church in southwest of Sydney. And he came because his sister came to my church and she had grabbed him and asked him to come and stay with her for a few weeks as an intervention because Tony had decided he was going to end his life. He decided he was going to take his life. He'd, he'd done all the research and worked out how and all the ways to do it and like, he was quite methodical. And he came out and, and he said to his sister, okay, I'll come and spend a few weeks with you and come to your church and, and, and you know, but, but I want you to know I'm ending my life. He, he was just, he'd decided. So over a period of a number of weeks, Tony came to our church I got to meet him, sat down, had a few lunches with him, spent a lot of hours talking to Tony. We talked about the love of God. We talked about all sorts of different things. And what I discovered about Tony was that despite outwardly having everything that we would all think is the trappings of success, he'd grown up in a family where he had an IQ of 130, but the rest of them had 140. And he was always the one who was not as good as the others. He, was, he, he grew up never feeling as though he'd achieved, never being encouraged, never feeling as though he belonged never feeling as though he was lovable, never knowing that he was loved. And so he'd gotten to this point, he had a relationship and that had broken down and so there more rejection was piled on rejection. And he'd gotten to his mid-30s and decided, well, I'm going to end it. Why would I keep going? I remember one particular day, um, Tony and I sat down and we had lunch. For about five hours we, we talked and, and really talked about a whole load of things and, and I really felt encouraged because I, he, he got it in many ways. At that stage, we had some amazing things happening in our church. We'd had this little baby who was meant to die and God miraculously healed and all these amazing things going on. And Tony was watching this and he was so happy for us. He, he rejoiced with us. He, he believed in God. He believed in Jesus. And he was so ecstatic that Jesus would do that sort of stuff for people like you. But his internal message was still, but he would never do something for somebody like me. And so the next day, uh, two of my church members who were part of the SES uh, were called out and, and, and they found Tony had actually gone through and he'd killed himself. And so I had to do his funeral. It was the first funeral I ever did. 
And it was quite daunting because New South Wales governor and all these well-to-do people were there. And I had to try and bring a message of hope into that situation. And what, what really profoundly affected me was that in all of this stuff, what Tony never felt because of what he'd seen in his family, not just his family, but because of that formative example was he felt like he wasn't lovable. He knew God. He believed in God. He believed in Jesus. He believed all the stuff that we preach. He was so happy that Jesus would do things for us, but he saw himself as not worthy of that. And in the end, he went with the decision that he had decided long before I met him. And, you know, it took me a long time to really work that through in my head. But the situation with Tony was, as he grew up, he didn't have an example of discipleship that caused him to realise that God was calling him and God was reaching out to him. The message that he grew up with was, you're not good enough, you don't measure up, you're not enough, you're not loved. You know, all these things, the things that were spoken over him, that he internalised, that he then empowered. And in the end, you know, Tony was taken from this earth many years before he should have been. I don't want to end this on a, on a negative note, but that's the importance of discipleship within the family. Because you can model a family where your child knows they're loved. You can model a family where your child knows that you love them. And because of that, they know that God loves them. Or you can model a family where your children just keep getting beaten up so much by getting it wrong. You get it wrong, you, you can't do it. Or you know, whatever the negative words are, just like encouragement can, can cause someone to thrive, discouragement can actually cause them to, to just crumple. The other saying that I grew up with and, and I hate as well is that the old one, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Names will destroy people. And this is why it's so important. Discipleship is not just something that happens at church. It's not just something, oh, well, let's put our spiritual hat on and go and disciple someone now. Every day of your life, you're discipling people. You're leading them to something or you're driving them away from something. And it's the example that I live. It's what I do day after day after day that will either draw people to God or that they'll cause them to want to run from him. And that's how important this issue of discipleship is. And I want to encourage you. You know, we've... we've as parents, we've gone through the journey now. Our kids are, are done. They're adults. They're, they're pretty well-functioning adults too. We're, we're proud of them. Um, we've done a lot of stuff wrong. We've made a lot of mistakes. We would go back and do a lot of things differently. But if you model the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, you model encouragement, you model all those things we talked about, you model love, your children will grow up knowing the love of God. And let me tell you, no matter what ministry or career opportunity you ever get, nothing is more powerful than having discipled your children and, and getting, seeing your children get to a point where they're well-functioning members of society who actually want to have a relationship with you as adults. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who draws us to you. Lord, that you are a God who is relentless in your pursuit of relationship with us. Father, we thank you that despite all of our flaws and our mistakes and our sin and our brokenness, Lord, you love us anyway. And you give us such an incredible responsibility, Lord, as parents, as maybe spiritual parents, grandparents, and give us an opportunity to model your love 
to our children, to our family, to those that are close to us, Lord. I pray that you would show us every day how to be intentional. You would show us every day how to be intentional about discipling our family, how to be intentional about living an example that would draw them to you. Lord, how to be intentional about making our actions mirror our words, being intentional about how to, to encourage them, how to build them up, how to show them love, how to, how to give the attention that shows that they are loved. And Lord, I pray that in those areas, maybe that we feel like we've failed. Lord, I thank you that you also model grace and forgiveness. Lord, that you forgive us. You taught us to forgive 70 times 7, Lord, again and again and again. And Father, you forgive us. Your grace for us is just as strong. And Lord, I pray that you, you would teach us, Lord, teach us to be able to see these situations as they arise day by day. Lord, as parents in our families, maybe if we're children or, or brothers and sisters within the family unit, Lord, that we too can model your love, that we too can disciple those within our family, Lord, just by the way we live. And Lord, I pray that as we do this, that we will start to see family units, that the people out there in the world will say, what's different about you? What, what is it about you? Lord, that, that, that they will come and ask us what it is that gives us the hope that we have because what we have is obviously so different to what they're experiencing and they want some of that. Father, I pray that that would be the legacy of our lives, of our families and of our children's experience growing up in our families, Lord. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would just bring healing to those areas of brokenness, maybe for where we didn't have that growing up and maybe where we haven't shown that to our kids. Father, just... Bring your healing into those situations, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.